0: We've been working through, we're continuing to work through this book uh, of Ecclesiastes Solomon's Wisdom, if you like. And um, I, I noticed I listened to uh, we were away last week. I listened to uh, what you talked through last week. Oh, it's really interesting. We've mentioned Nietzsche twice in the past two weeks, so if those of you who are really into that kind of philosophical stuff, you might find that interesting. We're not going anywhere near Nietzsche this afternoon. Uh, but we're going to look at two poems. Uh, And really, the issue that we're looking at this afternoon is twofold. This chapter is about time and life. So here's the question. What kind of life are we going to live? Or to put it in slightly different language, which is really appropriate for those of you who might twig onto this, uh, which life are you going to choose? Some of you, yeah, you with me? Here's first poem. Choose life, choose a job, choose a career, choose a family, choose a really big television, choose washing machines, cars, compact disc players, and electrical tin openers. I'll not go through it, but it concludes like this. Choose rotting away at the end of it all. Wow. That's amazing, isn't it? Those of you are, who are kind of switched into that, you'll know that that was from 20 years ago, 21 years ago, actually, 1996. It's taken from Irving Welsh's Train Spotting. And in lots of ways, the sentiment, the feeling, the thought of that is just written through the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a question about life, the futility of life. What life am I going to choose? How does the anti-hero and the hero of the story respond to that? He says this, I chose not to choose life. I chose something else. And the reason? There are no reasons. Who needs reasons when you've got Heroin. I just think when we, you were looking at last week at the whole decision that the, the wise writer of this book turns around and he says, I chose to just party. In other words, he's kind of saying in the same refrain, the life that I chose is to not choose life, I chose this instead, but I'm filling my life up with this. And yet this book, which was written thousands of years before, leaves you in exactly the same place and it says, but what? So what? How is life now? In Solomonic language, as we come to another poem, this is the second poem that we're going to read, it speaks like this, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot. Do you hear the poem? That's poetic language, isn't it? A time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. And so it goes on and it's creating this picture of contrasts in life. And yet at the same time, as we look at these contrasts, we recognize that this chapter, it almost doesn't say what we should do about it, does it? It doesn't give us an answer. It just holds up this this issue of life and it says, this is life. What are you going to do about it? I think in a genius way, that's what Irving Welsh was doing in his original book. He's saying, life, this is it. What are you going to do about it? how do you respond well one of the things that we're going to see is even though we're sat at this moment in time thousands of years ago in this wisdom literature we are not constrained by that are we we are thousands of years into the future from then from when this was written and we recognize that it's part of the bible that is a springboard to an answer So there's two things that we're going to do this afternoon. The first thing that we're going to look at is the questions that it asks, the mirror as we saw last week, that it lifts up in front of us and says, this is us, what are you going to do? And then we're going to see how it prepares us for the answer. So that's our journey this afternoon. The first thing that we see as we look at this is that this is... Uh, it 's a picture of life, and yet at the same time it 's impossible for issues to resolve. Just pause for a minute and look at the list. Think about doing some of those things in life okay we 've paused long enough. What do you notice you can 't do both at the same time, can you? you can 't do both at the same time. They are contrasts. You can't plant and uproot in that same moment. You can't tear down and build up in that same moment. It's it's creating for us the paradox of life, the separation of issues. And what else does it do as we look at it? It says that in these contrasts, we are left with an absolute understanding that our life is finite. When we're doing some of those things, we realize that we might do the opposite in so, at some point in the future. So, so we might build something, and we recognize that this isn't going to last for very long. I'm going to have to tear it down and rebuild it again. What does that say? It says that time sits in between those And that is the passing of our lives. That is life just passing by. Wallpapering. Do you enjoy it? I'm not good at decorating. I'll tell you for nothing, I'm not very good at decorating. But how often when you decorate... Do you realize, you clock up the years and you say, oh, this room really needs decorating. Some of you aren't actually old enough to go through this. I've just realized, yes, some of you. Okay, just this is what it's like when you get old. All right. You decorate and then years into the future, you think this room just needs decorating again. It's looking a bit shabby. We'd better decorate this room again. So you go through the whole job of decorating the room and you sit back and you think, when was the last time we decorated this room? Man, 15 years ago was the last time that we decorated this room. Now, initially, that's quite you know, it's mucky pups, you don't decorate for 15 years. But the other side of it is, 15 years of life has passed. Isn't that astounding? Fifteen years have gone, never to be recovered. That's what this is about, isn't it? It's saying life is filled up with lots of things. You can't do one thing and the other thing at the same time, but at the same time, these very acts remind us that our life is finite. It is constrained. There is only certain things that we can do. Do you remember when we started this journey we said that there's certain uh, phrases or ideas that the the author wants us to keep in our minds and it it really hits us in verse 1 and it says there is a season for every activity under the heavens. Do you remember when we looked at that and we said that's a way of looking at life imagining that there isn't a God in existence. It's a way of looking at life on this level, that, that comes back again and again in the book. Under the sun, under the heavens, a way of just living down here. I, I think as I've come back to this text, I've realized, you know, over my life reading the Bible, I've probably used this chapter in all sorts of wrong ways in the past justifying certain things, there's a time to do this, there's a time to do that. God's Word says that that's okay without actually noticing that there's this bit that says it's under the heavens. It's about about portraying a picture, not justifying certain things that you decide to do. It's a way of seeing life. And the outcome of that, the outcome of this poem is it faces us with certain questions. Look at verse 9. At the end of all of that, what do workers gain from their toil? Now, yeah, okay, initially you might say, I can step back from that wall that I've beautifully wallpapered, and I can say, wow, but what happens? It decays, it gets tatty, it gets ripped down or maybe you've built the most beautiful extension on your house perfectly structured in the way that you want it and the next you sell the house and you go back and you see what the next people have done to the house that you loved and it is nothing like the house that you had they've torn down all sorts of things they've changed this they've changed that what do you gain for that why do we why do we build Why do we do this? Why do we live life seeking to achieve certain things? That's what the writer is asking. There was another person in the Bible who asked just after, actually, just after Solomon, who asked just this kind of question. His name was Absalom. He he wanted to make something of himself, but he, he wanted a heritage. He wanted to be remembered, uh, and we read in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 18 verse 18, during his lifetime, he's dead by now, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself, for he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. <laughs> that's, that's his kind of response, his feeling. There's nobody to carry on remembering me. I want to be remembered. And so he builds a great pillar in the Kidron Valley just outside of Jerusalem as it drops down into the valley between Jerusalem and Gethsemane. He builds this great pillar so that he will be remembered. If you go on a bus tour now, You'll say, there's uh, Absalom's pillar down there. And the reality is, it's a first century construction. It has nothing to do with Absalom. Absalom's pillar is gone and forgotten. It is torn down and it is no longer remembered. That is exactly what will happen for you and me. Exactly. That's what this chapter is throwing up in front of us in a sense it's this futility of life what do we do about life it's passing it's gone it's almost profound hopelessness isn't it really this chapter it really is deep we're going to get happier by the way it's going to get better another question Another response, a reflection in verse 11. He's made everything beautiful in its time. I think that the idea is that the contrasts that are made are seen as one. It, it's never a beautiful thing to die. <laughs> it's never a beautiful thing to die but it is a beautiful thing to see birth. Peace is always a beautiful thing, is and war is never a beautiful thing. When you bring those contrasts together and you see them in a sense as one thing, it's saying God has made that thing, that idea, beautiful in its time, but what? We can't continue it. We can't maintain it. The beautiful thing is slipping through our fingers and we have no control over it. I think that beautiful thing idea is really important. It's taking these contrasts as one item and it's saying, isn't it beautiful? But it's only for a time. It doesn't last. The beauty, no. No, that, that's probably, probably a bit political. There was a time when the beauty of democracy in America was an amazing thing, but I'll not go there. <laughs> Isn't it interesting, though, that even the reflections of the past few weeks, I think, make us ask questions about what was beautiful once... We can't even maintain in the best of places. There is something that this chapter throws up before us that says we have a profound problem. We have a real issue. What is the real issue? Life and time. I wish, do you know what? Rachel has this kind of standing joke about me. The number of things that I wish that I'd been able to do for a, for a kind of career. So many things that I'd love to have been able to do. I still would love to be able to do lots of things. Not actually because I'm dissatisfied at all in what I'm doing. Not at all. But because there's so much to do, isn't there? And yet, life is so fleeting There's so many things that I'd love to understand and dig into. I kind of put myself in that first chapter of Solomon's writings where I say there's so many things that I would love to try. I haven't got the resource to do it. He had the resource to do it. But at the end of the day, what does it tell us? When we get there, it's never, never, never what we thought it was going to be. And we can lift up this mirror to ourselves through the misery of Irvin Welsh, or we can lift up the misery of life through this poetry in the wisdom literature, and we can say, what is life all about? How am I going to possibly live life? I think the response that the, the writer starts to introduce is it's almost resignation. It's almost a resignation. Look at what he says in verse 12 and 13. I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy, to do good things while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. This is just as good as it gets. Folks, make the best of it. Just make the best of it. Do what you can. That's one response, isn't it? It's kind of resignation. i look at this. I can't do anything about it. So I'm just going to try. And yet, the trying hints at something. I think probably as we work through Ecclesiastes, I think there's a good chance, I can't guarantee it, but there's a good chance that we're going to mention C.S. Lewis every week. I think it's really possible because he thought a lot about just this kind of thing. And he said, as I went through life, I realized that my desperate desires for certain things are a hint at the truth and the reality of the existence of God. I'm looking for something that I can't deliver. I'm I'm seeking something that this world hasn't got to offer. Why do I even think that that exists? Because I'm made for something more. There is this restlessness in me which desperately wants to find the more. And then we have this little hint. I know that everything God does will endure forever. What a contrast to what he's been saying about our lives. What God does endures forever, but what we do doesn't last. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken away. God does it so that people will fear Him. That isn't be terrified of Him. That's actually realize the difference between me and God. When you come into something which is breathtakingly awesome, you tremble, you fall apart, you quake. And that's what this is hinting at. A God that is. Look at 15 and 16. Whatever is, has already been And what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. So there's some sort of, what, it's just going on in this cycle, this hamster wheel, this, we mentioned, uh, I can't remember the movie that Ash mentioned last week that, that dealt with exactly this. Do you know, I didn't go to movies for this particular illustration. They say that you can tell a lot of a person from the music that's on their phone, Apparently. So here's a few of mine. Led Zeppelin, Mozart, The Beatles, The jam. Doris Day. <laughs> it's true. Doris Day. It's a guilty pleasure. I love Doris Day. <laughs> she sang Karah, Sirrah. Whatever will be will be. Kind of strange, isn't it? The way all of these things about life just constantly keep pouring in and in and in and saying, What? What is life all about? Do you know what I find really fascinating about this chapter? What I find fascinating about this chapter is the very end of it. Verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing... Let me read it from here. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. It's back to that. Do what you can. But there's a desperate question on the end of this. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Who can bring us to see what will happen after I think that's almost in a deep-seated, desperate kind of way, the wisdom literature saying, what is there that's going to be more? What's going to reveal the more to me? And we sit 2000 or so A.D. after Jesus. Because precisely this desperate cry that we see held up in front of us, I would suggest, is answered in Jesus. This life. (laughs) I am desperate for life. Who's going to tell me what's beyond? Who's going to tell me what will be made of it beyond? Who's going to connect me with that greater something? What? that life that what the ends that were just like the animals no <laughs> no that says how is my life connected to something that lasts it's the play of absalom i want to be remembered i want to live i don't want to be, die and be forgotten i want to live what life is it it's a life which is not constrained It's a life which doesn't begin and end. It's a life which continues. It's what? It is eternal life. It is one of the most amazing concepts that Jesus proclaims in response to the desperation of this chapter. It is one of the most amazing concepts. He says, life, why do you feel like this? Because you're made not to die. You're made never to face the sadness of those things which at times are beautiful. You are made always, only, ever to build and to build and to build and to make good and not to tear apart. You are made for peace. You are not made for war. You are made for life. You are not made for death. That's why we feel the way we do. It is the most amazing concept that Jesus says. I have come to bring you life, He says. Now I want to ask a question. How? Jesus comes into this world. And He is what? He is the moment where eternal life connects with this finite natural life but it culminates in yet another moment it's a moment which he talks about time and time again my hour has not yet come my hour has not yet come my hour is nearly on its way my hour is about to arrive my hour is now it's a moment in time which is what it's a moment where Jesus stands in that gap between eternity and time, and He dies, nailed to a cross. That is Jesus' hour that He's been preparing us, to not preparing Himself for, preparing us in the narrative to be ready for this hour. What does that hour do? As I, as I thought about that, I thought, you know what, there's something really incredible about that hour. In that very moment, the triune God kills and heals at the very same moment. Isn't that amazing? As Jesus dies, we live. As war is raged, peace is forged. As the power of Satan is torn down, life is built. Isn't that incredible? Doesn't it point to the difference between us and God? That the wisdom literature is trying to make us see. We can't do both. But in the goodness and the beauty and the majesty of God, He can do both at the same time, so that in a remarkable, incredible way, as Jesus dies, I live. <laughs> well, I actually live because in that very moment of Jesus dying, there is the absolute surety that he will live as well. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that astounding? Isn't that the moment when our, our angst about life and time is resolved? Are you fearful about life? We've got such a mixed bunch here today of ages. And it, we, we don't need to be 95 to fear the end of life. We can be 25 to fear the end of life, or 15. And yet our very fear is the moment which reminds us that we are made for something more, and Jesus is the answer that says, and in me you can have life. I have come that they might have life, And have it to the full, Jesus said. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. I believe that. I believe that everybody who trusts in Jesus for eternal life receives that. And I know so many people who have believed and held on to that, and they have died. Does that mean that the Bible has failed? No. It means that our life is way more complex than just these short years. We are made to live eternally, and we live eternally in Jesus. What life are we going to choose? That's what this chapter does. It throws up life and it says, what about you? What about you? Is there a reason? Or are the things that we're doing just because there are no reasons, it's just what we do? Or are we saying, no, unlike Renton, My life has meaning, it has purpose, the decisions, the things that I choose to do are rooted not in my own sense of feeling, but in a life in Jesus. I hope that as we continue to journey through this book, that the hope that Jesus brings and the life that He offers is the antidote to the angst that we experience so frequently.